from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 18th, President's Day. Today, what books about impeachment teach us about the Trump presidency and how the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi has reframed U.S.-Saudi relations. Over the last two years, there has been a lot of talk about impeaching the president of the United States, and even more so now that Democrats have taken over control of the House. But for how much the word impeachment gets thrown around, it's actually a very rare occurrence. Two-thirds of the senators present not having pronounced him guilty, the Senate judges that the respondent, William Jefferson Clinton, president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the first article of impeachment. And now, book publishers are tapping into those calls for impeachment. In the Watergate era, there was basically one book that everyone was reading about impeachment. It was called uh, Impeachment, a Handbook by a law professor named Charles Black. And it just happened to come out in 74 when it was time to, to have that conversation. But now there's just a bumper crop. Carlos Lozada is the Post's nonfiction book critic. Often impeachment is sort of denigrated and people say like, oh, you know, it's, it's just politics, it's just political. That's the point. It's a political remedy to a political problem. He's been reading quite a few of these books. And he's exploring questions like, does the president deserve to be impeached? And even if he does, is it a good idea to try to do that? And you actually brought some of those books here. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six, seven different books about impeachment. Yes. And you know what? There are a lot more that I could have brought and could have read. They all take very different approaches. Some are deep dives and others take very sort of legal constitutional approaches to to understanding impeachment. One of the things that I found most interesting from especially that latter set of books is how they explain what the founders and the drafters of the Constitution were were thinking at the time. And you get these sort of two contradictory things. One is that they would really be surprised by the prevalence of impeachment talk in modern American politics, not just about Trump, but you know, with all recent precedents, there's been a lot of conversations about the need to impeach. And they didn't really think of impeachment in that way at all. It was, it was a last resort. It was something that you only would pull out of your toolkit if you really felt that the constitutional foundations of the country were threatened. That for most presidencies, it was completely out of the realm of possibility. Right. It was, I mean, you know, think about how many presidents have been reviled, you know, hated and not impeached, right? But the the other side of it is that, you know, as surprised as they might be about how loosely we toss impeachment around these days, the sort of things that they were worried about and that you see coming up in, during the Constitutional Convention and the debates of a ratification of the Constitution are exactly the kind of things people are talking about today. They worried that a president would you know, pervert his administration for personal enrichment, that he would betray his trust to foreign powers. They worried that a president would engage in misconduct during a campaign leading to his election. And so investigating 
the potential misdeeds of a campaign and considering those as potential impeachment grounds is not something that would have surprised them at all. It's something that they anticipated and worried about. And, of course, for the founding fathers, when they were considering how to create a, a formal process for impeachment, um, you know, they they'd considered giving it to giving that responsibility to the Supreme Court, but that ultimately they decided that it would be a responsibility that lied with Congress. Why did they decide that? I think, you know, and here I'm just I'm drawing from what these scholars interpret about the founders. If it was something that the Supreme Court had to decide, uh, then you feel that it becomes more of a more of a legal or or, or criminal. But if you look at um, even the the result of impeachment, you know, it just means the president gets kicked out. Um, it doesn't mean the president goes to jail, right? Like it is it is a a political remedy. And the reason that makes sense is that in the end, they had to decide, uh, you know, both the House for impeaching and the Senate for for convicting or acquitting. They had to decide if whatever offenses they were looking at truly rose to the level of threatening the constitutional order, of threatening the entire basis on which our politics functions. And that's a political judgment. Where it gets into trouble is if that political process becomes excessively partisan. And that is what a lot of these authors are are warning about. Well, that's one thing that I found really interesting from your review of these books was that they weren't just talking about should a president be impeached? Should President Trump be impeached? Like, what does one have to do as president to deserve being impeached? But what they also focused on was this question of how does impeachment change a country? And is it a good idea to even impeach anybody? Yes, that is a recurring theme in these books. They warn against believing that, say, say you're a, a critic and opponent of, of President Trump and feel that, that you know, he has to go. Simply impeaching and potentially convicting Trump will not somehow return the country to some you know, pre-Trumpian you know, status quo where everything is, is, is sane and simple and nice. Uh, first of all, that's not where the country was. Uh, which is part of the reason that Trump was elected. So it ignores both the enduring forces that that brought Trump to power and also the consequences, potential consequences of impeachment itself. Impeachment is the nuclear option of politics, right? It is. It means undoing the result of an election. And a lot of these authors worry, I think quite correctly, that this can inflict deep wounds that take generations to to heal. I mean, during Watergate, if you look at at Gallup polls, more than 40% of the country had pretty high level of trust in Congress, right? By 2018, that was down to 11%. And this is the body, the sole body empowered to impeach a president. And so how do you end up with a process that is considered legitimate and fair when, to begin with, no one even trusts the body that is charged with carrying out that process. Exactly. And and it seems that the process of impeachment itself has gotten more partisan over the years, even when you look at the potential impeachment of Richard Nixon versus Bill Clinton, that like things fell a lot more along party lines in the 90s because it had become such a Democrats versus Republicans kind of process. Mm-hmm. In the Watergate era, you know, of course, we didn't reach the moment of impeachment, but the House Judiciary Committee that voted in articles of impeachment did so on a bipartisan basis. And by contrast, during 
the Clinton impeachment process, it was widely regarded and quite accurately regarded as a deeply partisan effort. In one of these books, it's called Impeachment in American History that breaks down these different episodes one by one. The authors recall that Tom DeLay, who drove the impeachment process among the House Republicans against Clinton, referred to the whole effort as the campaign, you know, mm. and that that tells you, you know, that's that's a pretty good tell of, uh, sort of how they saw this process. So the issue is not that impeachment is political. It has to be. It's supposed to be. The issue is when it becomes too partisan, it risks losing legitimacy. And that's why presidents, all presidents who face this attempt to make it seem partisan. You know, it's not just Trump. I mean, Trump does it a lot now when he's talking about, you know, the the angry Dems and the witch hunt and all this. But Nixon did it. And Bill Clinton also benefited from how partisan the Republican effort seemed. The Star Report, which excruciatingly detailed his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, really backfired on the Republicans and actually benefited the president, however humiliating it was, because it made it seem like people who were trying to take him down were not really interested in upholding the Constitution, but just wanted to embarrass him. You know, that was something that the Democrats at the time sort of stoked. They they wanted it to look partisan and therefore not legitimate. One of these books, The Power of Impeachment by Lawrence Tribe and Joshua Matz, they were basically giving this warning about what it means to impeach a president and what happens after. And they write that, quote, virtually every source of dysfunction in our democracy, hyperpartisanship, dark money, fake news, manufactured outrage, cultural warfare, could be magnified tenfold by an impeachment. Do you think that's true? Could be. That's what they're saying. I think I think it's a risk. I think it's something that it speaks to the need to think about the day after, right? What what happens, uh, not just the, the trauma of going through the process, but what happens next? I think there's a lot to consider about the day after. And the risk is that the partisan divisions that are so prevalent today um, will not be eased by an impeachment process, but will only be, be hardened by it. And then you have to deal with that. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thanks for having me. On October 2nd, 2018, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He moved toward that day with, I think, a growing sense that this was dangerous. And it was. Jamal Khashoggi was killed and dismembered. David Ignatius is a columnist for the Post, and Jamal was a friend of his. David says that Jamal couldn't help but write what he thought was true, that religious extremists were too powerful in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But just an inability to stop. He just kept doing what he was doing. But like truly brave people, he knew the risks. 
The CIA later concluded that the murder had been ordered by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And while that revelation has sparked international outrage, the Trump administration has been criticized for failing to retaliate. They didn't make a determination. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We've talked about this. This is an unacceptable murder. Make no mistake about it. The American people understand that, and the Trump administration understands that too. Khashoggi's murder has called some people to question the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia. There's not a smoking gun, there's a smoking saw. Republicans and Democrats in Congress came together to pass symbolic bills in the House and the Senate condemning Saudi Arabia and its crown prince. You have to be willfully blind not to come to the conclusion that this was orchestrated and organized by people in, under the command of MBS and that he was intricately involved in the demise of Mr. Khashoggi. Just because you're our ally, you cannot kill with impunity uh, and believe you can get away with it. That's a global message that we need to send. And uh, at the end of the day, if we don't send that message, uh, then I worry uh, for what path we, we move ahead. The fact is, we still don't know exactly what happened or where the body is. Saudi Arabia's story keeps changing. At first, they didn't do it. Then, actually, yes, they did. It was a rogue intelligence officer. Then that was debunked. We know first that a team of 15 Saudis was sent to Turkey. According to Saudi charging documents, 11 of those Saudis, led by an intelligence general named Mahir Mutrib, we still have conflicting reports about whether they tried to in effect, arrest Khashoggi and bring him back to the kingdom. He resisted and was killed, or whether they went there with the purpose of killing him. But David says that one thing is increasingly clear. They came intending to deceive the world. I'm curious what you think has made the death of Jamal Khashoggi different from the death of other journalists in the past. It seems like his death got so much attention. Why do you think that is? It's a mystery when you think of, of how many journalists are killed around the world every week, almost every day, why this murder broke through what's often indifference. And I think there are several reasons. One, it was so brutal. He walked in to get documentation to marry his partner and never left that consulate in one piece. Early reports that he had been sawed into pieces and his body disposed, I think, was part of what made this so intense. The initial denials by the Saudi government that proved to be lies covering up this murder. And then finally, to be honest, I think the fact that Jamal Khashoggi worked for the Washington Post meant that his death got covered with a greater intensity, certainly by the Post, but I think other news organizations followed. Do you think that Americans' views of Saudi Arabia are changing because of the death of Jamal Khashoggi? I think Saudi Arabia for many decades has been problematic for America. There's been concern about Saudi Arabia for a long time. What I think Jamal's murder has done is make Americans more suspicious of a person who had seemed like he was a modernizer. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman encouraged women to drive. He cracked down on the Saudi religious police. He 
tried to get new investment into the kingdom. He talked about privatizing Saudi Ramco, their oil company, all good things, all things that Saudi Arabia needs. And in the murder of Jamal, the world saw a dark side to Mohammed bin Salman that had not been as obvious before. I don't think that people had seen him as somebody with blood on his hands. It just turned up the heat on a series of issues that were there, and people looked at them with the special intensity that you have when suddenly you think the person who is effectively running this country seems to be implicated in the murder of a prominent journalist. What do you think is the U.S.'s responsibility in the aftermath of that murder, and how are U.S. officials viewing what they need to do because of Khashoggi's death? I think for the U.S., there's one overriding requirement. We have a deep and longstanding relationship with Saudi Arabia, and I think in the long run in both countries' interest. But it's important because the ties are so extensive between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, demonstrate clearly and publicly that what happened to Jamal Khashoggi will never happen again. I'd like to see a conclusive process of accountability in which, as I believe, MBS's own personal role in authorizing this murder is brought to light. There's a broader requirement in terms of U.S. national security that the Saudis show that they're stabilizing a country that in this murder was shown to be impulsive, erratic, dangerous to its citizens, potentially dangerous to itself. It's not, Saudi Arabia needs investment badly. It's going to be very hard for major international investors to go into the kingdom until they make a clear accounting. I think the other thing that I would say is that Saudi Arabia over time needs to make the modernization effort something that visibly is of the people. But at this point, there are activists who have been trying to be part of that modernization effort, who have been jailed, who have been mistreated in jail. That seems like modernization is very much not accepted by widespread society. If I got to tell the leadership Saturday what to do to put their country back on track, I'd start with releasing prisoners from jail above all the activist women who had been advocates of women driving who were imprisoned for reasons that still just seem outrageous. I do think Americans, as angry as we are about what happened to my colleague, my friend Jamal Khashoggi, we shouldn't be in the regime change business. It's not really our place to say who should be king of Saudi Arabia, for that matter, who should be crown prince. That's for Saudis to decide. I really worry about Saudi Arabia becoming another failed state in the Middle East that essentially has no government except these super repressive autocrats at the top. MBS is in danger of becoming a new Saddam Hussein. And I think American policy should be focused on preventing that from happening, not pushing the situation so he grabs even more power. So you say that we shouldn't be in the business of regime change, but at the same time, there are more steps that we could be taking to actually support the changes that you're describing that we're not taking. So I'd love to see the U.S. speak out more strongly about human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. And we should say at the highest level, which we haven't done, this matters to the United States. This matters to our government. We're expecting progress to be made on that. 
I'd like to see a more public and explicit statement of what I believe is our policy in private, which is that the war in Yemen must end. This humanitarian catastrophe has to end. And I think the final point that I'd make is that we need to say Saudi Arabia's future stability and security depends on a process of accountability for Jamal Khashoggi's death that satisfies the U.S. government, the public, in some ways most importantly for Saudi Arabia, the investors who will determine whether Saudi Arabia has the capital to modernize its economy, grow beyond being a one-commodity export country. So I think those things are all important. They're not the same thing as saying, unless Mohammed bin Salman is deposed, the United States should, uh, should refuse to deal with Saudi Arabia. David Ignatius is a columnist for The Post. That's it for today's show. We want to hear what you think about the podcast, so head to postreports.com slash survey and share your thoughts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey.